0: From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you.
1: Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Alzheimer's disease is the most common form of dementia, affecting almost 6 million Americans, and the number of people affected continues to grow as our population ages.
2: To date, there is no disease-altering treatment or cure for Alzheimer's But researchers are hard at work.
1: On today's program, we'll learn more from a Mayo Clinic expert.
2: Also on the program, we'll learn about interventional radiology. Radiologists who don't just read and interpret x-rays and scans, but are a part of the actual treatment of some conditions.
1: And a Mayo Clinic pathologist with an interesting hobby, magic.
2: All that along with a health minute from Vivian Williams. Right after this.
1: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Alzheimer's disease. You know, the Alzheimer's Association estimates that there are nearly 6 million people in the United States who have the disease. Now, here are some sobering statistics. One in 10 people over the age of 65 have Alzheimer's. One in three people age 85 and older have Alzheimer's. It's predicted that the number of people with Alzheimer's disease in the United States could more than double by the year 2060. And Alzheimer's is now the sixth leading cause of death in the United States.
2: Talk about a disease that's not only affecting more and more people. It's also a condition that despite researchers' best efforts, it's still hard to diagnose and even harder to treat. Joining us in studio with an Alzheimer's update is the director of the Mayo Clinic Alzheimer's Research Center, Dr. Ron Peterson. Welcome to the program. It's great to see you. Well, thank you so much for having me back. Dr. Peterson, nice to
1: see you. I doubt that there is anyone in the world who has spent more time, more effort trying to unravel the mysteries of Alzheimer's disease than you.
3: Is that your way of saying I'm a bit uh, long in the tooth? Well, no, not exactly. uh,
1: I, I just remember that you and I have been talking about this disease for nearly 30 years on the radio. That's correct.
3: That's right.
2: What has changed in 30 years? Well, as you were saying, Tracy,
3: I think our ability to diagnose the disease is much better than it was 10, 20, 30 years ago because we can be more precise now, not only on the clinical side, but on what we call the biomarker side. By biomarkers, we mean blood tests, imaging tests that, in fact, tell us this person has Alzheimer's disease in his or her brain.
1: Do you ever get frustrated that we haven't made more progress in the treatment of Alzheimer's? Yes, I do. I mean, really, when you think about it, we have some
3: symptomatic drugs that we offer people when we make the diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease, but we don't have that disease-modifying therapy. And by that, I mean something that gets at the underlying biologic process itself, stops it, reverses
1: it. So tell us the difference between Alzheimer's and dementia and what we mean by the term dementia. Well, dementia means that this is an
3: overriding condition where the person no longer remembers as well as he or she used to, probably affects other aspects of thinking, and it impacts their daily function. So cognitive function, cognitive failure now impacts your daily function. So that's dementia. Then you ask the question, what's causing the dementia? So is it due to Alzheimer's disease, which is a degenerative disease of the brain? The nerve cells aren't working as well as they formerly did. Could it be due to small strokes? Could it be due to the side effects of medications you're taking for your other conditions? Could it be depression, anxiety, psychiatry? So dementia is a syndrome, a clinical picture, and then it's caused by something. Now, in fact, in aging, up and away, Alzheimer's disease is the most common cause of dementia. What do we know about cause? Well, if you define the disease by the presence of these plaques and tangles in the brain, plaques made up of the protein amyloid, tangles made of the protein tau, we think there's a genetic susceptibility, so it tends to run in families. There are rare but real genetically caused forms of the disease. But in terms of environmental factors, where are some associations, but no real definitive causes of the plaques and tangles in the brain.
1: It seems to be more common in women. Is that because it is more common in women or women because women live longer?
3: Well, that's a controversial topic right now. I think it is true. Women do live longer, and the biggest risk factor for Alzheimer's disease is age. So there are more women with it. But there are also some biologic predispositions. It could be hormonal. It could be some of these genetic characteristics like apolipoprotein E that may behave differently in women than they do in men.
1: Tell us about the symptoms. You mentioned memory loss. I presume that that's the most common symptom. But what are some others?
3: The most typical symptom is, in fact, forgetfulness. And now we all get a little more forget. I don't know about you, Tom, but I'm a little more forgetful than I used to be. I understand. And, and so um, I think forgetfulness is part of it, but it's beyond the forgetfulness of aging. So when people start to forget information that they formerly remembered quite readily, those around you who know you well start to realize, hey, Dad, you're forgetting that thing you used to remember quite readily previously. It's a repeated pattern. We get concerned. But then it goes beyond memory. So now we have trouble problem solving. We have trouble word finding. We have trouble maybe finding our way around the community, getting lost in areas that we formerly knew quite well. And so those are the symptoms as they come on very gradually and very insidiously over years that uh, lead us to be concerned this might beyond, be beyond what we would expect for normal aging. One thing that's happened over the years is we do pick up on these earlier signs now. So, right, where are my reading glasses? Where are my car keys? That's virtually everybody. Everybody has trouble coming up with the name of that person with whom I used to work, saw him in the grocery store. Ooh, is he? Three aisles later, of course, that's Bill. How could I forget Bill? Uh, But when that advances to now you're forgetting information that you formerly should know, that becomes a
1: little more problematical. Does Alzheimer's always first affect the memory part of the brain? Is that why that's the most common symptom, or do we know?
3: It's it's the most typical presentation, and the part of the brain that gets involved initially with Alzheimer's disease is the memory part, the temporal lobe, a structure called the hippocampus. That's usually the beginning. But there are some atypical forms, and actually in individuals with younger onset disease, the presentation may be quite atypical. What do I mean by that? There's a rare form called posterior cortical atrophy or the visual variant where people really have difficulty with visual-spatial relationships. They may go to the eye doctor first. Eye doctor says, gee, your vision's fine, but I'm not processing visual information. That's because that part of the brain becomes involved initially in those individuals. There's a language form where the the word-finding problems, the understanding language, the communication really gets impaired outer proportion to say the memory part. There's even a frontal form, a behavioral form where people's personalities start to change. They become a different person to the family. Rarely that can be a presentation of Alzheimer's disease as
1: well. So what about life expectancy? Uh, It does shorten your life, correct? And what's the average life expectancy following diagnosis?
3: Well, it's very variable and we sometimes see people who have an aggressive form of the disease who may pass away a few years after diagnosis. We have those who go out twenty years after the diagnosis. But in general, eight years plus or minus from the time of diagnosis till the time of death, if it's diagnosed, say in the early seventies or
2: in the eighties. Is that the same as it was thirty years ago? Eight years? Basically it is, yes. That's well that not is frustrating. What do these people die of?
3: Well, usually if if people go to the later stages of the disease, motor functions, swallowing, some basic autonomic functions will become impaired. A person may aspirate, get pneumonia, and die of a medical complication of the brain not handling our motor functions very well.
1: All right, our guest is the director of the Mayo Clinic Alzheimer's Research Center, Dr. Ronald Peterson. Time for a short break. When we come back, we'll talk about what's available for treatment, and we'll also tell you what you can potentially do to prevent the disease.
2: You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
1: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. We are with the director of the Mayo Clinic Alzheimer's Research Center, Dr. Ronald Peterson. We've talked in general about Alzheimer's disease. It's a devastating disease for a large number of people, some 6 million in the United States. We want to talk a little bit about diagnosis because you did say, Dr. Peterson, that we're better now at diagnosing it than we used to be. And what did you mean? Well,
3: now we have the availability of these biomarkers that actually characterize the underlying biology of the disease. What do you mean by that? Alzheimer's disease is plaques and tangles in the brain. Plaques are made of this protein called amyloid. The tangles are made of the protein called tau. We can now see those proteins in the brain. We can do PET scans that actually light up those regions of the brain if, in fact, they have plaques and tangles there. We can do a spinal tap, and we can de- detect proteins in the spinal fluid that give us an index of what's going on in the brain. So. If a person becomes forgetful later in life, you think it might be Alzheimer's disease, we can now clarify it. Is in fact Alzheimer's disease as opposed to some other conditions, small strokes, other proteins that may be misprocessed in the brain? So we can get much better with regard
1: to the specific diagnosis now. But First of all, uh, a PET scan is an expensive test, several thousand dollars. So is it important to know and is it worth spending the money for that test? Well, I think it's important to
3: know if the person really wants to find out. It's very important for the design of clinical trials. So if we're testing out some new experimental medicines, it's very important for us to know what in fact exists in the brain. But you're quite right, Tom. The the cost of these tests is many thousands of dollars. Clearly not the way to go on a population-based, but for research, it's important.
1: All right. What about a blood test? We saw a headline just today sent uh, to us by one of our colleagues that said Alzheimer's blood test, quote, one step closer, unquote.
3: So as you were saying, these PET scans, which are quite definitive with regard to the diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease, are expensive and certainly not available everywhere around the country. What these recent studies have indicated is that there may be measures in the blood now that do, in fact, tell us whether somebody has amyloid in the brain. It's not a yes-no yet, but it helps us at least narrow down the general population as to which individuals might benefit from these more expensive, more invasive tests like PET scan, spinal fluid. So, for example, here in Olmstead County, we're doing the study called the Mayo Clinic Study of Aging. And we draw blood on individuals who participate in this study, and we follow them every year. Those blood samples now that have been frozen away for years are being sent to these laboratories to tell us who, in fact, in the population might be more susceptible to having these proteins in the brain.
2: Do you want to know, uh, obviously, the sooner you can know this, the better off it is, but is that because you can tailor the treatment a little bit better before they start showing symptoms that they have got possible. You wish.
3: Right, exactly. (laughs) That's the hope for the field, Tracy, And, uh, and and we haven't done very well on the therapeutic side thus far, but that is, in fact, the thinking that if we can identify people who are at risk even before they become symptomatic, before they become forgetful, we may be able to intervene with a disease-modifying therapy if and when, hopefully when, we develop these.
2: If that's the future, what is treatment now?
3: Well, right now we we talk about some symptomatic drugs that can alter certain chemicals in the brain that may help us with our remembering, keep us stable for a little longer, but they don't get at the underlying disease process itself. We still talk about lifestyle modifications because, believe it or not, things like exercise, physical aerobic exercise, may be beneficial. I won't go as far as to say prevent Alzheimer's disease, but it may slow down the course, delay the onset a little bit, much as we do in heart disease. We don't necessarily prevent heart attacks, heart failure, but if we can push that back by two, three, five years, That's a big deal. We're hopeful that we can do that with Alzheimer's disease as well.
1: You didn't talk at all about the drugs that you have available, and I think there's a reason for that, isn't there? I mean, they're not all that effective, and are they expensive also?
3: They're not very expensive now because they're generic by and large, but believe it or not, we've not had a new drug approved for Alzheimer's disease by the Food and Drug Administration since 2003. Really, sixteen years despite billions of dollars being spent on the development of therapies. It,
2: why is that? That you're is it that you're not looking in the right spots, or well, it's a, it's a tough
3: nut to crack, actually. So we talk about these two proteins, amyloid and tau, getting at them, getting in the brain, getting the drug into the brain removing the protein or stopping from being misprocessed is an important target, but we've really not been able to demonstrate. We can get drugs in the brain now to remove that protein, the amyloid protein, but we haven't been able to demonstrate that it makes any difference clinically. Now, there are a lot of reasons for that, and it's a much more complex situation than just amyloid and tau itself. There are other proteins that get misprocessed in the brain, Something, a protein called alpha-synuclein that causes Lewy bodies associated with Parkinson's disease, another protein called TDP43, which in and of itself can cause memory impairments in the brain. We have vascular disease. Small blood vessels get closed off. And in most people in aging, in their 70s and 80s, it's a combination of those factors. So amyloid and tau are important components but they're just components of a complex process.
1: All right, let's talk about prevention, because all of us want to do what we can to not get Alzheimer's disease. So tell, tell us about the World Health Organization guidelines for risk reduction of all kinds of dementia, actually.
3: Right. So the World Health Organization came out with a a paper earlier this year that was describing certain lifestyle factors that may, in fact, deter the onset of dementia. Now, I must clarify and say they were talking more about dementia in general than they were specifically about Alzheimer's disease. Nevertheless, that's very important because it may be that these lifestyle modifications, again, aerobic exercise Staying intellectually active, a heart-healthy diet, remaining in your social network, social connectedness may actually defer the onset of mild cognitive impairment or dementia or slow down their progress. So these are important uh, findings, and and, in particular... The World Health Organization speaks to everyone, but to low- and middle-income countries in particular, and that's where the rate of dementia is increasing most rapidly because these countries are experiencing an increase in aging, again, the biggest risk factor. So it's a really important document.
2: Obviously, you have been working on this for so long. What excites you about coming in? Well, I think we're getting close. I, I do, and I don't
3: mean we have the magic drug around the corner, but I think we're learning so much about the underlying disease The biology of the disease, the characteristics, what may modify its onset, delay its progression that I think we're getting very, very close. And, and I would suspect that we will be able to come up with a combination of disease-modifying therapies with lifestyle recommendations that may, in fact, have a real impact.
1: So those WHO guidelines also indicated that smoking wasn't good, and I guess right. that doesn't surprise anybody, and alcohol in moderation. One other thing I want to ask you, is there any evidence that there are any over-the-counter vitamins or supplements that will help prevent alzheimer's disease
3: Uh, the short answer uh, tom is no there's a recent report by the by aarp on this very issue if you want to google the global council on brain health just reviewed this whole area and came to the conclusion that if a person does not have a deficiency state meaning they're low in b12 they're low in vitamin d they're low in calcium if all those levels are normal Taking supplements will not help you, will not augment your performance, make you live longer, or anything of the sort. It's a $40 billion industry out there right now, and there's really very little data to support any of it.
1: Dr. Ron Peterson, director of the Mayo Clinic Alzheimer's Research Center. There are 6 million Americans living with Alzheimer's disease. It affects 1 in 10 people over the age of 65. And the older you get, the more likely you are to be affected. Our thanks to one of the world's Alzheimer's experts, Dr. Ron Peterson. Thanks,
3: Tom Tracy. I appreciate it.
2: Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll learn about interventional radiology.
1: And one Mayo Clinic scientist with an interesting avocation. Up next, a Health Minute with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
0: Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. Do you eat a meal and then get hungry soon afterwards and want to eat again? Well, we have some tips on that. The word satiety is a fancy word for a pretty simple, important concept. It's basically how full a food makes us feel and for how long. Dr. Donald Hendricks says focusing on satiety can have a big effect on your health and your weight. Your body processes different foods in different ways. More specifically, your body processes different foods at different speeds. He says proteins and fats are processed slower than carbs, and foods that are processed slower, like proteins and fats, can give you more satiety. He says when you fill up on foods that provide greater satiety, you're less likely to overindulge on less healthy foods that may cause you to gain weight or provide less nutrition. That's why when we're hungry, he says, a little bit of nuts with protein and fat can go a long way. Other high-protein and high-fat foods that provide satiety include lean meats like chicken, fatty fish like salmon, eggs, yogurt, broccoli olive oil avocados and dark chocolate if you need something sweet so when you're planning for snacks and meals think about satiety and what's going to make you feel full longer for the mayo clinic news network i'm vivian williams
1: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Chimes.
0: And I'm Tracy McRae.
1: You know, Tracy, in the past, a lot of people thought that radiology was sort of a boring specialty. Hmm. In fact, I can remember when I was in medical school, we used to call them shadow doctors because (laughs) really all they did was read x-rays, and x-rays were essentially shadows. Okay. But, you know, that has really changed. That's before CT scans, before MRI scans, before PET scans. And now radiologists are actually treating patients. They're intervening in ways that we never even thought of. It's a subspecialty called interventional radiology.
2: Long way from shadow doctors. shadow doctors. No longer are they shadow doctors. We recently talked with Dr. Naval copsell who told us about radiologists treating uterine fibroids. And today we'll learn what else they're doing to blood vessel, that's vascular malformations of the face, and aneurysms of the brain. Joining us in studio is Mayo, Mayo Clinic no- uh, radiologist, Dr. Walid Brinjikji. Welcome to the program, Dr. Brinjikji.
1: Thank you. Yeah, you say that very well. That's got a, your name's got a lot of J's in it. It
4: does have a lot of J's in it. Five dots, actually.
1: <laughs> Brinjikji. Well, welcome so, to the program. Yeah, let's start with vascular malformations. Uh, what are they, and what types do you see?
4: So vascular malformations, uh, essentially, they're abnormally formed blood vessels, and you know they, they can uh, occur in any portion of the uh, vascular tree. So they can, there can be vascular malformations of the arteries, of the capillaries, of the artery and vein connection. That's called the arteriovenous malformation. Veins venous malformations, and then the lymphatic vessels called lymphatic malformations.
1: Then these can occur anywhere in the body, right? But you
4: concentrate
1: on the ones that are on the face?
4: Correct, yeah. So I'm what's called an interventional neuroradiologist. So I okay. specialize in blood vessel diseases kind of from the neck up and then the, the spine as well. So I focus mainly on the face, the airway um, around the eye, uh, and and you know other areas around the neck.
2: And... I'm I'm not sure. I'm sh- you don't use x-ray for this? Do you use CT scan or how do you find those vessels?
4: So I use either uh, ultrasound or I use x-ray for it as x-ray. well. Okay. Yeah. A lot of times these uh, malformations are, are clearly visible on the face and you know we can access them with a, a needle what's called percutaneously mm-hmm. for uh, treating these malformations.
1: And how did they used to be treated? Why is this in advance?
4: Well, you know, essentially, um, in in the past, people have had trouble like, identifying these uh, malformations. So a lot of times they were called tumors, or you know, and, and docs were kind of scared of them, so they kind of left them alone. Uh, but because they were on the face, because they were on the face. But but now we, uh, you know, have access to better imaging that allows us to better, you know characterize these types of uh, malformations and we can treat them using what's called you know you know minimally invasive or percutaneous techniques essentially using imaging to guide a needle into the malformation and then injecting um, medications to help these malformations scar down
1: so they scar down or collapse basically go away because you've cut off their blood supply uh, yep exactly and did it used to be that these were treated by plastic surgeons um, and excised if possible?
4: Correct. Yeah, it used to be that if, if they were very, um, you know, uh, disfiguring, or if they were causing you know issues with you know breathing or eating or vision, they would get excised with surgery. But surgery uh, for these types of malformations, because they kind of uh, infiltrate into like the, the tissues and, and go really deep down, the surgeries. You know, we're associated with higher rates of complications, recurrence, and disfigurement, recurrence too, and disfigurement yeah. too. So here, you know, we can now do this, you know, essentially with a needle. The patients can go home that day, and they don't even know, you know, where the needle was because the needles that we use are, are so tiny. Is what
2: you're doing considered to be cosmetic surgery?
4: Um, th- yeah, that, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Some people would consider it cosmetic uh, and, and that's reasonable. You know, sometimes it is purely for cosmetic re- reasons. Um, but for a majority of cases, you know, we're talking about, uh, you know, a, a malformation, for example, of the lip is... Impairing the ability of somebody to chew or eat, or a malformation of the tongue is impairing someone's speech, a malformation of the eyelid is impairing someone's vision. So, a vast majority of these cases, you know, there's some sort of functional impairment, but we do do them for cosmetic reasons as well. Because, you know, I mean, uh, these malformations, especially if someone's a a young child, uh, you know, there can be bullying associated with them, it can affect the child's confidence, and to be able to, you know, get get rid of these things so that the kid can not have to deal with that kind of stuff is very important.
1: So are most of these red and unsightly?
4: Yeah, they're either red and unsightly or, or blue and uh, unsightly. If it's red, it's an arterovenous malformation, so it's an artery component. If they're blue, then it's a venous malformation.
1: And what's the biggest one you've ever treated successfully?
4: Uh, yeah, so the, the largest one, I mean, you know, is probably like uh, 20 centimeters in size, which is pretty large, involved the entire airway and was causing a lot of uh, sleep apnea for a patient. It was essentially um, causing the the breathing tube or the trachea to kind of collapse a little bit. So, you know, using... The uh, CT machine were able to identify the malformation, treat it, and then, you know, resolve the patient's sleep apnea.
1: I said 20 centimeters. That's a pretty good size. That's That's much more than 8 inches or so. Yeah, yeah.
2: much more than cosmetic. That's right.
1: All right, so, and you've got another device to treat uh, brain aneurysms. Tell us about that, a, a web device.
4: Yeah, so... Over the course of the past 30 years or so, there's been an incredible evolution in, in treatment of brain aneurysms. Probably about 30 years ago, the only way to treat a brain aneurysm was with surgical clipping. So you essentially do what's called a craniotomy. You take a part of the skull Craniotomy off. means, yeah, okay. Yeah, you take a part of the skull off. You, they find the aneurysm. They put a clip across it to... Keep blood from going into the aneurysm. Then came, you know, something called coiling where we basically took a, we go in from the groin through the artery and then we take a tiny plastic tube called a catheter. We put it in the aneurysm and we put little pieces of metal inside the aneurysm. However, there was a subset of aneurysms that we couldn't treat with Coils because they essentially the, co- the coils would fall out, and those patients would have to go through surgical clipping. And now there's a new device called the web device, which is essentially a, a mesh ball, if you will, that you can introduce into the aneurysm through what's called a catheter that, that tiny, you know, plastic hollow tube.
1: All right, so remind our listeners what an aneurysm is kind of like a blowout on a tire.
4: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so it's like a little outpouching in the in the blood vessel, and um, you know, in the brain, they're pretty small. They're about, you know, I, I mean. Uh, a very very large aneurysm would be one inch in size you know for most of the aneurysms that we treat are about half an inch or smaller in size Um, and uh, if they do rupture or blow out um, they can cause you know life-threatening bleeding in the brain just because of the pressure from the blood exactly
2: how are those aneurysms detected
4: so a lot of times uh, patients, you know, they may get imaging uh, like an MRI scan or a CAT scan for headache, and they undergo the scan. And then we incidentally, you know, we may find a, a large aneurysm that, you know, would warrant treatment. Um, that's for the unruptured aneurysms. Uh, for the ones that are ruptured, those are detected when The patient basically complains of the worst headache of their life and goes to the emergency room.
1: And and tell us a little bit more about this web device. I think it was developed right here at Mayo Clinic, or at least you were involved. And and how exactly does it work?
4: So uh, yeah, so it was actually it was developed by a small startup company, and they worked with uh, our team here at Mayo to do uh, a lot of the initial uh, development and animal work uh, to help get it into patients. So it was really nice to uh, be involved from the you know, basically the the bench to the bedside. And we participated in the original clinical trial that got the web device uh, approved. And essentially, what we do is, um, you know, going in through the groin through a tiny, you know, needle poke in the groin, we take this plastic tube up to the aneurysm, this thing called the catheter, and then we push out this mesh ball that goes into the aneurysm and it conforms very nicely to the aneurysm sac. So it keeps it from rupturing. Exactly, Exactly. and it keeps the blood from going inside the the aneurysm. And, And the procedure takes about uh, you know, like 20, 25 minutes. Oh, my God. Slick. Oh, my <laughs>
1: yeah. goodness. Well, radiologists just don't look at shadows anymore. Absolutely can, for not. Sure, the tests they interpret are now highly sophisticated, and they are developing techniques to actually treat patients with complex conditions like aneurysms of the brain and blood vessel malformations of the face. Pretty incredible. Dr. Walid Brinjinkchi, thanks so much for Dr. being with B. us. Dr. B, <laughs> thank you.
2: We're going to take a short break. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, pathology and magic.
1: You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, I think it's fair to say that all the physicians at the Mayo Clinic are are well-educated and well-qualified in their field of medicine. But, you know, there are some. There are a few who are not only good doctors, but they're also talented in other
2: ways. Lots of other ways. Yeah. One of those is forensic pathologist, also known as medical examiner, Dr. Reed Quinton, the pride of Wiley, Texas. (laughs) He has two passions, medicine and magic, and here to tell us about his day job and his avocation maybe just all the way around, and explain that Wiley, Texas thing. <laughs> Dr. Quinton, welcome to the program.
5: Thank you so much for having me here. I really appreciate it.
2: Are you from Wiley, Texas?
5: <laughs> no, actually, I'm from New Orleans, Louisiana, which might explain a little bit of the magic thing, too. Um, but I've been living the last 19 years in Dallas, Texas, and Wiley is one of the cities within Dallas County.
1: So, you have not been in Rochester that long?
5: Oh, no. I got orientation here at Mayo during the polar vortex in January. Oh. So, yeah, when I looked down. You came
1: at the wrong
5: time. Yeah, when I looked down and saw an 80 degree difference between here and Dallas, I thought, oh, no. What have I done? <laughs> this might have been a mistake.
2: Actually, the fact that you, that's when you started here in Rochester, that's good because it can't, it can't, it won't get worse than that. I promise. Promise? Yeah, I
1: you're hope. right. But before you left, the mayor of Wiley, Texas, did proclaim Dr. Reed Quinton Day. Now, what's that about?
5: Oh, it's a little embarrassing. But, but uh, well, when I was there, there were two things uh, that I was affiliated with, with Wiley and some of the other surrounding cities, too. Um, but one was my uh, work in forensic pathology. So I was the Dallas County Medical Examiner, the deputy chief at the time. And uh, we did serve Wiley. So there were a number of times that I had to serve the community there in that aspect. Um, but also there were several times uh, in my pursuit of my passion, which is magic and sleight of hand, there were times that I was able to help Wiley in different ways, uh, particularly when they had a few uh, Halloween events that centered around magic and uh, and that type of thing. so anyway i I've performed magic in Wiley, but I've also done uh, service work for Wiley too. They they must have liked you. I guess. I guess so.
2: How did you get interested in forensic pathology?
5: That's an easier question to answer. Uh, My father was a New Orleans police officer. And so he would come home and talk about work. And as most police officers do, he came home and said, Son, when you grow up, you can be anything you want, but do not become a police officer. (laughs) Uh, So he he discouraged me from that. And uh, so I I ended up on this career path, originally being involved uh, more in forensic science. So I originally kind of was thinking more along the lines of DNA because that was becoming the big thing at the time. Uh, And then eventually, thankfully, had a mentor in college who pushed me to go to medical school. And uh, so here I am
1: so medical forensic pathology medical examiner it means that you, you you figure out how why people die
5: right, so our number one uh, job, if you will, uh, as a medical examiner or a forensic pathologist is usually to establish cause and manner of death, so why someone died, and that 's in a medical legal setting. Um, we also have a number of other jobs, um, for instance, oftentimes it 's identification, so we have uh, bodies that we receive that m- may not be identified and we have to figure out who they are sometimes that's actually more difficult than figuring out why they died um and then on top of that uh oftentimes one of my job descriptions is presentation so basically going to court going to a jury and explaining to lay people what it is we do and what is so important about that in this particular case that they are there for
2: the DNA aspect of that is a big deal. I mean, not just the law and order angle, like we need to wrap this up in 40 minutes. Right. But um, that, like you said, uh, for a generation before you, that probably wasn't even on their docket of what they considered.
5: Correct, yes. And, and even during all of my time in school and in practice, it has changed so dramatically. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the things that we do now that are routine collection of DNA evidence wasn't even thought of when I was going through mm-hmm. residency and fellowship.
2: All right, let's talk about magic. All right. Okay, so we know if you grew up in New Orleans, that's yes. a little bit why you're uh, interested in magic, but you've continued that as a hobby into your adult years.
5: I have, and uh, I'm one of the unusual, well, I guess all magicians are unusual in some way, uh, but I'm one of the in- unusual ones in that most magicians have almost the exact same story, which is around eight years old, I had an uncle or someone (laughs) who gave me my first magic set. And then oftentimes they'll say, that's when I got the magic bug. And it just stuck with them ever since as a hobby. Uh, For me, I didn't get the quote magic bug until medical school of all things. And uh, I was actually a third year medical student rotating through cardiothoracic surgery. Mm -hmm. And there was a physician, a retired surgeon named Dr. Watts Webb, who would come in and do small group lectures for us and talk about, you know, today we're going to talk about pulmonary hypertension or what have you. And then afterwards, he'd say, you guys want to see a card trick? (laughs) And I just thought that was amazing. And uh, I had never been exposed to that sort of in real life, you know, just someone doing tricks like that. So um, after that, fortuitously for me, my very next rotation was pediatrics. And so it just kind of clicked. I really enjoyed that. Maybe I should learn a few things. It might help while I'm on the rotation. And, uh boy, I had no idea it would... Get me into some of the things I'm in now. Well, how, how did you learn magic? How do you learn it? Well, I actually went to Dr. Webb and, and asked him that question. I was like, where do you learn this? <laughs> and uh, it, it books, for one, um, some of the best ways to learn are actually still just books. Uh, but nowadays, obviously, there are um, many, many different uh, avenues for video and things like that. Um, what I think is fascinating uh, comparing magic to medicine is that we kind of do the same thing. There are books. There are lectures. There are conferences. There's everything you can think of in the field of medicine. They do the same thing in magic. How do you combine the two? Um, in many ways. Now, the obvious way, obviously, is is uh, to to be uh, performing for patients. I think that's what most people think of when we talk medicine and magic. And unfortunately for me, I can't really do that at this point <laughs> in my career. The my, my patients don't respond too well to that. Um, <laughs> So I or have anything to, else. Right. So uh, I have to use it in different ways. Um, and oftentimes what we discuss, and I even discuss this with my forensic fellows and now residents, things like that, is just using those same skill sets, basically stagecraft, uh, to either interact with patients or, in my case, interact with jurors or anything like that. So it's the idea of how do you present yourself? How do you communicate? Do you make good eye contact? Um, and just kind of making either the patient or the jury sort of feel comfortable and sort of that they're there in that space with you and they understand where you are.
1: What's your favorite trick?
5: Oh, Lord. Uh, mostly what I do is, is card tricks, um, things like that. Things that I can carry in my pocket, and just, you know, out a notice if I need to. Um. I noticed you came with a full deck. Well, you know, yeah. I don't know. My wife says I play with a partial deck now. <laughs> no. Um, but, uh, I do really enjoy that. I guess as far as, um, magic that I can see and enjoy, I love comedy magic. Um, there are several out in, in Las Vegas, uh, some mm-hmm. guys who are just phenomenal, but, what I love about them is oftentimes the magic isn't necessarily that technical. It's the presentation. Mm-hmm. It's it's how they deliver it that just makes it so perfect.
1: The art of magic has a lot to do with the art of medicine, as we've learned. Dr. Reed Quinton, forensic pathologist and magi- magician. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, Dr. Quinton. Good to have you.
5: Thank you for having me.
1: And that's our program for this week. For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network, where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic
2: tweet us your health and medicine questions anytime at hashtag MayoClinicRadio or email us at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. We may answer your question during an upcoming program. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our
1: producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives.
0: And I'm Tracy McCrae.
1: Thanks for joining us.
0: Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.